0: Welcome to the Project Zion Podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts community of Christ offers for today's world.
1: Hello and welcome to Project Zion Podcast. This episode features Executive Director of Community of Christ Historic Sites Barbara Walden, Apostle Lachlan Mackay, and Kirtland Temple intern Megan Reed as they present a class on how Community of Christ views church history through the lens of the church history principles. This class is followed by a lively Q&A with participants. Originally provided online on August 2, 2020 through Salt Lake City Community of Christ Online Ministries, This class was part of our traditional Sunstone Sunday Invitational immediately following the 2020 Sunstone Symposium, which was also provided online due to the global pandemic of 2020. We now join our guests, Barbara Walden, Locke Mackay, and Megan Reed.
2: Welcome, friends. Uh, It's so good to be here. Uh, As Carla mentioned, my name is Barb Walden and I serve as the Executive Director for the Community of Christ Historic Sites Foundation. And I'm also one of three who serve as the official church historian for Community of Christ. So it's an absolute joy to be with you this morning. And now that you're all here, let me explain what you're in for for this morning's class. Uh, we're going to begin sharing our own stories. So I'll have an opportunity to share with you what my journey has been like in church history and how it began. And then I'll turn the mic over to Apostle Lachlan Mackay, who will share a little bit about his journey through church history. And when Lachlan is finished, uh, Megan Reed will share a little bit about her journey. Uh, After you've heard our journeys, Uh, we will walk through the church history principles and talk about how they're helpful as you're reading and interpreting the past. Uh, As we finish those church history principles and how they are helpful in exploring community of Christ history and Latter-day Saint history, we will then open up the floor to all of you in the audience in an open Q&A. Feel free to ask any question about the church history principles, about community of Christ history, about our experiences working and researching community of Christ history. I don't think there are any limits to those questions. Uh, Once the Q&A comes to a close and Carla will bring it to a close with her closing remarks, that will complete 50 minutes of church history fun. So again, thank you all for joining us. Um, I hope you are as excited as we are. So as we talk about the church history principles, I think it's helpful for you to get a little bit of an idea of a background between uh, Lachlan and I and Megan and what our experience has been like. Uh, For me, I grew up in Southern California in a small conservative congregation of the Community of Christ. And when it came to church history, we were learning a traditional church history, a very faithful church history, where we look to the people of the past as models, model disciples of what we wish to be. When we look to Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith uh, was the mouthpiece of of God, and his actions were in direct connection to uh, how God was leading him to lead our faith movement. So between the summer of my freshman and sophomore year, uh, I left college in order to experience a summer internship at the Joseph Smith Historic Site in Nauvoo, Illinois. And it was while I was in Nauvoo that summer, the first two weeks with my summer professor, Alma Blair, who is also a history professor at Graceland College, now Graceland University, that first two weeks, Alma spent those weeks teaching us a church history that was very different from what I learned in Sunday school. Um, My fellow interns and I were learning about a history that was based in historical evidence in 1840s journal accounts and newspaper accounts and in these primary sources that directly conflicted with the way that my grandmother shared the story of the church with me. And that experience was much more than learning church history. It was about dismantling the heritage that I had learned. And it was painful. If there's anything that I've learned over the last 25 years, it's that church history is hard. And as an 18-year-old summer intern, I was learning that head-on in Nauvoo, which I had known as the City of Joseph. And while I spent that summer in the City of Joseph, I discovered that the Joseph Smith that I had learned about in my childhood, who was up on that pedestal, he was not only falling from that pedestal, he was falling hard. And it was learning about Nauvoo polygamy, learning about the Council of 50, learning about Joseph's run for the presidency, uh, learning about the Nauvoo militia in what I thought was a peace church, learning about property ownership. It was learning about all the flaws and cracks in our church history, and I couldn't help but feel that I had been lied to uh, through much of my childhood and that the history that I had learned was quickly becoming not the honest history, not the faith-promoting history, and that dismantling that history was very painful as an 18-year-old. But our professor at the time acknowledged that I was struggling and my fellow interns were struggling, and he would take time with us to listen to those struggles. And he helped me see that Nauvoo was not the city of Joseph, that as Joseph was coming down from that pedestal, that I needed to look to the people that surrounded him, look to the community that was building up that historic Nauvoo community, because it was with those people that that is where the church is. And that was really uh, eye-opening. It was learning about the um, Women's Relief Society and what they were doing to help orphans of the community and to help the homeless of the community. It was learning the immigrant story. It was learning about William Marks and Emma Smith. And it was through those people that I found a heritage. And in many ways, as Joseph was falling to the ground, it was people like Emma Smith that was being, that were rising up in my mind. Um, And it's even years later, decades later, as I go into church history, it's the stories of the people that I find great interest in that I find inspiring. I think Joseph Smith is still that prophet puzzle in my mind. There's just more pieces to him now than there was when I was 18 years old, but it's recognizing that church history can be hard. And I certainly experienced that on the banks of the Mississippi River in the summer of um, 1996, many, many years ago. So that's a little bit about my experience. It was the struggle, but then also learning that church history is not all about Joseph, that there are so many more involved in that historic community. Locke, your turn.
3: So I had a very different experience. Um, I was raised in Jackson County, Missouri, uh, raised going to Smith family reunions in Nauvoo. Um, My mom grew up in a, a home that Frederick Madison Smith, who was, A profit president of the reorganization lived in. He lived with his daughter and her family, Um, but I never learned the story that the way that Barb learned it. I I learned the story, but um, there was no pedestal involved. Um, And I went away to school and studied Russian studies and economics at University of Missouri. I thought I was going to work for the government. it's a really long interview process, so needed to kill time. I signed up for a museum management internship through Graceland, same program that Barb later ended up in. Uh, and I thought, you know, before I go to Nauvoo for the summer, I had to learn something about this place, learn more about this place. And I picked up Robert Bruce Flanders' Nauvoo Kingdom on the Mississippi, which, along with Fon Brody's bio of Joseph, was one of the early expressions of New Mormon history. Um, and as I started reading, I was just captured by the story but, but because I had never learned a version where Joseph was significantly elevated, it, I di- didn't have the trauma that Barb experienced. I didn't have to, to dismantle. I didn't have to demythologize before trying to put the story back together again. Uh, so just a very different experience than Barb. Um, how about you, Megan?
4: So, yes, my, my experience is uh, definitely a little different. I did not grow up in a religious household. Um, my mom kind of allowed for us to, to find our own path. And, uh, you know, through friends and through um, going to to different churches, I was able to find Community of Christ. And uh, I actually joined Community of Christ because of the community that um, I experienced uh, today so to lead me to where i'm at today i'm actually at seminary in louisville kentucky and i am studying religion and uh, i'm currently also an intern for uh, the kirtland temple and uh, it's been an exciting experience and i've been able to actually learn about the history and 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 all that it entails Um, i haven't had to do any dismantling but um it's interesting seeing um, how history has been portrayed and how it is uh, has affected people's lives. And it's just an exciting journey to go through um, and exciting to learn. So I'm excited to, to continue that journey as well.
3: Thank you, Megan. Megan is here with us this morning in her role as a Kirtland Temple intern, and she's providing our tech support and just is amazing at it. I'm so thrilled to have her with us. I'm going to go to a screen share, and we're going to explore briefly Community of Christ church history principles. President Stephen the President of Community of Christ, helped develop these in 2008, and they have been really helpful for us as we have worked to to better understand and better process our story. Uh, So let's look at the first one. Continuing exploration of our history informs our identity. We seek always to clarify our identity, message, and mission. In our story, we see clearly God's spirit giving the church tools, insights, and experiences for God's purposes, that people with a shared memory of their past and an informed understanding of its meaning are better prepared to chart their way into the future.
2: Number two, history informs but does not dictate our faith and beliefs. The foundation and continuing source for our faith is God's revelation in Jesus Christ. Studying history is not about proving or disproving mystical, spiritual, or revelatory experiences that birth or transform religious movements. Sound history informs faith, and healthy faith leads to insights about history. Doctrine and faith, guided by the Holy Spirit, must play an important role in discovering the lasting meaning of such events as well as the deeper truths found in them. Our understanding of our history affects our faith and beliefs. However, our past does not limit our faith and beliefs to what they were historically.
3: The Church encourages honest, responsible historical scholarship. Studying history involves related fields. Historians use academic research to get as many facts as they can. Then they interpret those facts to construct as clear a picture as possible of what was going on in the past. This includes analyzing human culture to see how it affected events. By that, we mean context is critical. Historians try to understand patterns of meaning to interpret what the past means for our future. This process should avoid presentism. We're interpreting the past based on a current worldview and culture instead of the culture at the time. And this one is really hard, this avoiding presentism, really difficult today.
2: Number four, the study of church history is a continuing journey. If we say that a book on history is the only true telling of the story, we risk canonizing one version, a tendency we have shown in the past. This blocks further insight from continuing research. Good historical inquiry understands that conclusions are open to correction as new understanding and information comes from ongoing study.
3: Number five, seeing both the faithfulness and human flaws in our history make it more believable and realistic, not less. Our history has stories of great faith and courage that inspire us, Our history also includes human leaders who said and did things that can be shocking to us from our current perspective and culture. Historians try not to judge. Instead, they try to understand by learning as much as possible about the context and the meaning of those words and actions at the time. The result is empathy instead of judgment. Our scriptures are consistent in pointing out that God uses imperfect people.
2: The Responsible Study of Church History involves learning, repentance, and transformation. A church focused on promoting communities of reconciliation, justice, and peace should be self-critical and honest about its history. It is important for us to confess when we have been less than what the gospel calls us to be. This honesty prompts us to repent, and it strengthens our integrity. Admitting past mistakes helps us avoid repeating them and frees us from the influences of past injustices and violence in our history. We must be humble and willing to repent, individually and as a community, to contribute as fully as possible to restoring God's peace on earth.
3: The church is a long-standing tradition that it does not legislate or mandate positions on matters of church history. Historians should be free to draw their own conclusions after thorough consideration of the evidence. Through careful study and the Holy Spirit's guidance, the church is learning how to accept and responsibly interpret all of its history. This includes putting new information and changing understandings into proper perspective while emphasizing the parts of our history that continue to play a role in guiding the church's identity and mission today.
2: We need to create a respectful culture of dialogue About matters of history. We should not limit our story to one perspective. Diverse viewpoints bring richness to our understanding of God at work in our sacred story. Of course, historians will come to different conclusions as they study. Therefore, it is important for us to create and maintain a respectful culture that allows different points of view on history. Our conversation about history should be polite and focused on trying to understand others' views. Most important, we should remain focused on what matters most for the mission of the church in this time.
3: And finally, number nine, our faith is grounded in God's revelation in Jesus Christ and the continuing guidance of the Holy Spirit. We must keep our hearts and minds centered on God's revelation in Jesus Christ. As God's word alive in human history, Jesus Christ was and is the foundation of our faith and the focus of the church's mission and message so now our hope is to share with you what this looks like in practice as we just go to an open q a um and we're going to ask you to use the the zoom uh, q and a feature to submit those questions please uh, so if possible use the q a feature versus the chat feature a little different in a webinar session that we're in now versus the regular Zoom meeting. Um, Just maybe to help prompt some questions, I'll give you some idea of what I feel qualified to talk about, Uh, but feel free to ask things that I'm not qualified to talk about. Um, But I spent about 15 years at Kirtland Temple. Um, uh, Barb was there for many years as well. So we have a, a pretty good background in Kirtland history um, history of the evolution of endowment during the Kirtland years and into Nauvoo. I've been in Nauvoo now for um, maybe 12 years. Um, my focus here really is more Smith family properties. Um, pretty good background in the Smith family itself, Smith family cemetery. It's one of the principal researchers on the Scandal daguerreotype, what might be the first photo of Joseph Smith. I've worked on that with Ron Roemmling for years. Um, really interested in visual images in the early church. I'm not artistic and I'm not great at visualization, um, but but I'm very interested in the arts community in the early church. Um, uh, Barb, what do you uh, like to focus on?
2: For me, I'm a big fan of the artifacts and the archives. I love the stuff. Uh, I was really captured by the Kirtland Temple um, my second summer at the historic sites. And to be there in that historic structure where people from all over the world would visit and not only hear the story of the 1830s community, but also share their story and share an experience in that house of worship really captivated me. And I have found that um, my interest in the the material culture and the historic stuff that's left behind, the historic sites, is something that I'm greatly passionate about. Uh, I just love the, the old stuff and the old people.
3: Tell us a little bit more about your research interests when you were at Cooperstown, Barb.
2: Baseball. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I went to graduate school at the Cooperstown Graduate Program up in Cooperstown, New York, which is a part of the SUNY system, SUNY Oneonta. Um, I, I love church history, but I also love baseball and was raised in a baseball family. So two of my loves kind of came together there in Cooperstown, where I had a chance to intern at the Baseball Hall of Fame Uh, with their collections department and had a chance to catalog some of those old baseballs. So one of the most powerful experiences I've had in history, American history, was holding uh, Roger Maris's 61st home run baseball in my hands. Uh, That was pretty remarkable. But also while I was there, I had an opportunity to research American outhouse architecture. So if there's any questions about the uh, architecture of outhouses, uh, I'm your woman. I'm ready to take those questions at any moment, friends.
3: <laughs> Great. looks like we do have some questions showing up in the Q and a now. Uh,
2: yes,
4: so the first question is from Alicia Hall. Please explain Adam God theory. I can't get my head around it.
3: Hello, Alicia. Uh, I can't either. so Adam God theory is not something that made its way into community of Christ. Um, my understanding is that that a uh, that is something that, that is first taught explicitly after the schism, after Joseph's death. Um, I think some would argue, and maybe rightfully so, that is kind of a logical extension of things that Joseph's taught in Nauvoo, but um, Adam-God is n- not something um, that I feel in any way qualified to discuss, again, not part of our uh, understanding and community of Christ.
4: Alrighty, and another question from uh, Jake Christensen. Uh, What can we learn about Community of Christ history through the layout and content of the current Doctrine and Covenants?
2: I'm happy to take that question. Um, What I think is helpful about the current Community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants, is it's laid out chronologically. So if you want to see the change in Community of Christ's view of Zion, going from a physical place on earth to uh, an essential place, whether um, it be Jackson County, Missouri, or um, French Polynesia, you can read about that through the chronology of the Doctrine and Covenants. So you'll see the the change in Zion, you'll see the change in a a number of uh, concepts, um, and and even the mission of Community of Christ through the current Doctrine and Covenants.
3: And I'll add that if you're new to Community of Christ, I find it helpful to start at the end and work backwards chronologically.
4: All right, and so we have another question from Alicia Hall. What is Community of Christ's position on the first vision? Is it vital to Community of Christ?
3: Can I take that one, Barb?
2: It's all yours.
3: Sure. Um, So uh, we, for a number of years in Community of Christ, have been comfortable with the idea that Joseph had left multiple accounts of that experience. Um, we did as a people eventually land on the 1838 account, which is the one that probably is best known, uh, two personages. This is my beloved son, hear him. Um, but in doing that, we ended up inadvertently converting people, Based not on any experience of their own they had, but in some cases people were converted by Joseph's conversion experience, which was not the foundational event of the church. We would kind of turn it into that later, but that is not how it was understood in the 1830s. As I think many of you probably know, it was not um, talked about really publicly much, if at all, in the 1830s. Um, it it later becomes critical to the story but it was not the foundational event for the church. The Book of Mormon was, was the miracle and the, uh, the really important focus early on. Um, so once we realized that we were setting people up for failure by stressing the 1838 account, we backed up and in recent years, we've gone back to more of the 1832 account. It's the earliest account. It's the only one in Joseph's hand. It's one personage seems to be um, Jesus, the savior um uh and and typically for example at our historic sites when we talk about um the story of the church in our videos or orientation videos you're going to see the 1832 account um for me though what is really important about the first vision is um what it says about the worth of all persons if if god cares about a poor, illiterate farm boy. God cares about all. And so I think we often find meaning in that experience um, still today, but in maybe different ways than we have in the past. I also am a little nervous about the idea of the the 1820 dating. So we we have done some things in Community of Christ, noting that many understand this to be Uh, the 200th anniversary. I'm not so sure. I think it might have been a little later. Um, So uh, I believe that Joseph had an experience with the divine in the grove. I think that as his understanding of the nature of God evolved, uh, his understanding of that experience evolved. It doesn't trouble me that he left different versions at different times, because I think that's That's how he understood it at that point in his life. So again, I think it reflects his evolving understanding of the nature of God.
4: We have another question from Stacy Jackson Roberts. In recent years, the LDS church has made institutional changes without doing uh, any form of institutional repentance. Going off of what you just mentioned about the importance of confession and repentance, does Community of Christ believe uh, that extends to the institution as well as individuals?
3: Barb, do it.
2: That's a great question. And I'm trying to formulate, some, formulate an answer to that, but think of some examples of an institutional confession. Uh, I have found in my experience, Community of Christ is really good at seeing the errors and mistakes of our collective church history as, as individuals and as well as historians. And I think in some ways, Joseph Smith III lays the ground for that in his memoirs. As he's looking back at his life, late in his life, he's really good at narrowing in the mistakes that he made along the way. And so I think for many in Community of Christ, as they're looking back to the church history, we've gotten to a point now that we're able to acknowledge the mistakes of those who have gone before us and focus on learning the lessons of those people who've gone before us through their mistakes. Uh, We've gone from ancestor worship, or worshiping the people of the past, to now being able to see the flaws of the people of the past and the mistakes that they made, and how can we learn from those moving into the future? What I'm trying to think of is a time that the church formally confessed of those mistakes, I I can see them doing that when it comes to historic people of the past. Locke, can you think of an example of an institutional mistake where there was that confession?
3: Well, this kind of fits, but Joseph III talks in his memoirs about the militarism of the church in Nauvoo and the Nauvoo Legion, and says he, he believes it was a mistake for that spirit of militarism to take hold in the leading authorities of the church and even a worse mistake for them to use scripture to defend that position. Um, uh, I, I think back in, and this is quasi-institutional, but a number of years ago at an anniversary of the Hans Mill massacre, um, members of the various faiths that share that that history had gathered there to, to remember those who were murdered. Um, but Andrew Bolton, and I don't remember if he was in our council of 12 by the, then or not. So either an apostle at the time or soon would be, um, as he was talking about the events of Hans Mill, reminded folks that yes, this, this is atrocious, you know, violence is never condoned, um, but that Missouri had apologized for the extermination order. Which didn't mean Lever will kill you, it meant Lever will forcibly remove you, but of course people were killed. Missouri in 1976 rescinded that extermination order and apologized, and Andrew noted in his remarks at Hans Mill that day that that we as a people, as a church, had not apologized for the, the culpability we had in the Mormon War in Missouri including accidentally attacking the Missouri state militia at Crooked River. Um, That's treason. (laughs) You can't do that. Um, So um, I also think in maybe some of our world church resolutions, for example, related to the treatment of indigenous peoples, um, that there have been uh, statements of regret for those kinds of things as well.
4: All righty, and another question from um, Rob Lauer. The Hebrew Bible is pretty ruthless in its portrayal of Israelites, patriarchs, prophets, and leaders, and yet it continues to show the divine at work in Israel's story. How might the Bible's approach inform our approach to Mormon history?
3: So I think it in wonderful and powerful ways informs and, forms, and and I regularly hear community Christ leaders, and again, particularly Andrew Bolton, um, lift up that very example. Um, it, you know, the, there were some folks who did pretty horrific things in the Hebrew Bible, who God still worked through, um, and, and that provides hope for me <laughs> and probably others uh, that that God can work through flawed individuals. Um, and I believe has and will continue to do so.
2: I agree with Locke. I think for many church members who are still dismantling the past, having the scriptures to go back on to see that God was working through flawed people throughout the scriptures gives them hope uh, as they're trying to disconnect the past and their faith. I think for a long time we viewed our faith and past as one, uh, being our shared past, our church history. And I don't think we're continuing to do that, but I do see that there are many church members who are continuing to dismantle the past and come to terms with the flaws and the human side of people from church history. I also find that for a lot of um, the people within the church history community for Community of Christ, they find themselves doing more listening than anything. Uh, just listening to people as they're doing that dismantling, I think, in many ways, you find yourself practicing pastoral care as well as um, credible research in that position because their history is hard. And and researching things that contradict or conflict with what you thought you knew can be very difficult for people. So having those flawed people within the scriptures to go to, um, there's a certain sense of consistency that's there. And I think it also gives hope to people like me who are definitely flawed individuals that if God can work with some of those people in the Hebrew scriptures, surely there's hope for me.
3: Barb's comment reminded me of something I touched on briefly yesterday. I was talking about polygamy in the earliest church yesterday. Um, and, and in many ways, I think community Christ members um, were grieving in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and some still are. You know, we believed Joseph when it came to his Uh, Denials of involvement in plural marriage and polygamy. Um, And as we discovered that that's not the case, it it was just devastating for many of our members. And so we were grieving and we just kind of set our history on the shelf. It was too painful. We just couldn't deal with it. Uh, But in recent years, I would say the last 15 years or so, um, we have started to transition from demythologizing, from taking the story apart to starting to put it back together in historically sound and theologically sound ways. Um, And so we were in some ways able to kind of take the story back off the shelf and unpackage it uh, and recognize the wonderful and powerful and compelling uh, and recognize the the terrible mistakes and the deeply flawed, often all in the same people. Um, And I think that's okay.
4: Alright, and from Benjamin Schaefer with the various uh, theophanies. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. Um, visions and direct experiences of God in the early church. Do you see any on? Um, do you see an ongoing role of gnosis and visions in religious life? How does Community of Christ view the experience of God today, and how does our church? history inform the experience of the divine?
3: So I think God created people in many different ways. And I think some see the world much more through a spiritual lens. And I think some see the world through more of a natural lens. And I think both are valid and real. Um, And so I do think that there is a place for ongoing, um, Theophanies and visions, I'm nervous when people, I'm more than nervous when people use those to try and manipulate others. Um, but, yeah, I, I think um, uh, there is a place in the church for uh, those kinds of spiritual experiences. Um, I have had some of those myself, but I uh, interestingly, I think, consider myself less uh, of the spiritually minded, <laughs> more the natural lens. Maybe uh, that's why I like history. I'm, I'm naturally skeptical.
4: All right, and we have a question from Stephen. I understand the tendency for Barbara's grandmother to teach an I- idealized history. Yet, as Barbara said, it was painful to unpack and rebuild at 18. Does Community of Christ leaders teach today's kids and teens a more current history to avoid later pain? And is there still value in the simple, tidy, and idealized stories for very young children?
2: Well, I appreciate the tip of the hat to my grandmother. Thank you, Stephen. (laughs) Um, Community of Christ is continuing to, to research and develop new histories Uh, Mark Scheer, the former church historian, uh, published three volumes worth of church history that certainly takes a look at uh, the history of our church in an honest way, Um, different from the church history that my grandmother was learning 100 years ago, or even that she was teaching me 30, 40 years ago. The same people are involved in that history, just different sides of the story. Uh, What we find ourselves doing now is taking a look at the mission initiatives and the enduring principles of Community of Christ today. And taking a look at, in the past, where do we see those early church members practicing the compassionate ministries? Where do we see them pursuing peace and justice? I think for our youth, they want church history to be relevant. And so we're trying to highlight the people and places of our past that help make that story come alive in an honest and credible way. Um, Not sugarcoating the mistakes of the past, but taking a look at the past through a different lens as to what can we learn from the people of the past, both the uh, successes as well as the mistakes. Um, In addition, for the Historic Sites Foundation, we've begun uh, publishing some shorter stories, and one of the um, publications we just came out with last year was taking a look at children in church history, and how were children, um, youth as well as teenagers, making a difference in their communities today? And that was um, an incredible project to take a look at the, the youth and what difference they were making in their time and place that we can learn from today. I think that's helpful for the youth of today to see that it's not just the adults making an impact, or building the kingdom of God on earth, but it was people their age, just like them, making a difference. Um, that's the part of the history that we have been focusing on lately. Um, it's not hero; it's not hero worshiping or ancestor worshiping, but more trying to make history relevant to what is happening in our world today.
4: Alrighty, and from uh, Robin Linkhart what are some recent discoveries and or historical research that has had significant impact on our understanding
2: of
3: church history? Mm. Leave it to Robin to ask the hard questions. Barb, you want to take that one, don't you?
2: Sure. Uh, Research is ongoing. That's one of the things we read about in the church history principles. And anybody who has published a book knows that once that book is published, some new documentation surfaces. A a journal is found in somebody's attic that gives a whole nother perspective of a history that you thought you nailed down. And so in many ways being a historian is a very humbling experience because just when you think you have an expertise on something, whether it's church history or outhouse architecture, somebody else is coming along right behind you and in many ways blowing away what you thought you knew. So I think if you learn anything from church history, it's the more you learn, the more you discover you don't know. There's always more to the story. But some of the more exciting uh, discoveries that I think have been happening, um, Mark in his third volume of Church History, took a look at the international story of the church. And I think that was a real gift to the church in um, how was the church formed in the Philippines and in Honduras and in countries in the continent of Africa. I think that was pretty exciting. I think some of the work that David Howlett is doing um, at Smith College is pretty exciting, and that helps form uh, our understanding of women in the priesthood and what took place in some of the more current history. I think for many historians, there's a struggle in that if you have lived through that part of the history, it surely can't be church history. And so for Mark here to study from the 1960s onward and be able to do the oral histories of some of the people still living today um, has really been groundbreaking research. Uh, in addition to the studies that are being done about some of the first women ordained as priesthood members and apostles, uh, I'm excited about that. It's, it's estrogen-inspiring, and I think that's good. Locke, do you have anything to add to that?
3: So it it doesn't feel brand new, but for me it's been really helpful to discover Joseph Smith III's role in returning the church to a focus on peacemaking. Um, so I, I believe that in 1830-31, there was a significant focus on peace in the church, but that, that we were soon uh, overcome by the frontier culture of violence in Jackson County, Missouri and Northern Missouri. Um, you see kind of the culmination of that in Nauvoo, the Nauvoo Legion, but Joseph Third turned us back in the community of Christ, to that focus on Jesus, the peaceful one, and the pursuit of peace. And I was initially kind of skeptical that uh, I, I kind of thought that our current peace, peace focus was probably the result of our leaders having come of age in the Vietnam War era. Um, so uh, the, the, that context. But as I really started digging into it, I am thoroughly convinced that our peace focus is deeply rooted with Joseph Smith II as he kind of reclaimed that strand, that element from the earliest church.
4: All right, from Brian, I recently learned about uh, doc, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 113 in the Community of Christ Scriptures, where Joseph III received the revelation to ordain men of all races to the priesthood. In the LDS community, the common perception today is that the ban started with Brigham Young, yet it seems that it must have originated in Nauvoo and survived the schism. Any more insight about the origin of the ban?
3: So, yeah, I think it's section 116, and I, I guess I might have a little different interpretation. I think that Joseph III is reaffirming his father's position on um, ordaining Black members, Black men, um, and I really think that, uh, so it's Connell O'Donovan, I think, who's done some good work on this, uh, and that he, he really places it in winter quarters with Brigham Young, furious about an interracial marriage. Um, so I, I don't think Joseph, in my interpretation, gets credit for the priesthood ban. I really do think that's a little later development. And I think Joseph Third is reaffirming that position. Um, Of course, it's happening as the Civil War has just ended. I am um, thrilled that we landed on that position at that really difficult and sensitive time. It it was so sensitive that when it it was the Community of Christ 12, the Council 12 who were asked to address it and they were afraid to. (laughs) So they turned to Joseph Smith III and asked him to go pray for additional light. And he comes back with this, what would become Section One Hundred and Sixteen, saying that we should ordain men of every race, um, but not not to rush it. So this is an example where presentism can can cause difficulty, because when I read Section One Hundred and Sixteen today, I find elements that are uncomfortable. But I think in eighteen sixty five, I think it was a pretty progressive position. But it says don't rush into ordaining. Uh, men that are black. But we did the same thing when we began ordaining women. We made the decision in 84, but intentionally built into a period of time for preparation. Um, so I, I think it was a pretty pretty brave move in 65. Uh, tragically, we did not always live up to it. Uh, this is an area where I think we have already apologized and need to continue to do so. Despite our official position, uh, There. There is racism in the church through the years, and I'm sure there still is. Um, um, but you want to add anything, Barb?
2: No. It, it looks like the next question coming up is is along the same topic. And I think uh, I'm always about handing out homework assignments. Great book written by Roger Lanius, uh, Invisible Saints, A History of Black Americans in the Reorganized Church. This is full of um, not only the, the history of African Americans in the church from uh, early members like Elijah Abel and, you're um, oh, kidding, her name. Wonderful biography it was just written about her. Jane Manning. Jane Manning, yes. Be sure to buy Quincy Newell's book on Jane Manning, it's excellent. Um, but it, it explores their stories as well as as an institution. How did the church? Um, evolved after Joseph Smith III's revelation. It also takes a look at um, African Americans joining the church after the Civil War. Great story about Caroline and Benjamin Booker, who were living in the South, uh, who joined the church, and also some of the African American missionaries that were um, based in Chicago and Detroit, um, even into the 1960s, and people like William Blue Um, And his work, not only in the southern states, like down in Pensacola and Alabama, but also up in the Kansas City Independence area. When we look at our history, you can find areas where um, we were on the right side of history and areas where we were on the wrong side of history. There are some painful stories uh, like Amy Robbins up in Michigan and even stories within Bill Blue's life, of discrimination, of segregation, of of areas where we were just on the plain wrong side of history. But you also find stories where, like Bill Blue and his family are attending a reunion, a family camp, where church members surround their cabin armed uh, there to protect them, as they heard rumors of people from the neighboring town wanting to come over and hurt the Blue family. So it's a complicated history in Community of Christ. And again, we find ourselves sometimes on the right side of history and sometimes on the wrong, which goes back to that church history principle that talks about confession and repentance, uh, where we have made mistakes and that we have the responsibility to um, correct ourselves in the here and now going
3: forward.
4: Um, So, yes, uh, that next question was from uh, Alicia Hall. As we face uh, race and ethnic inequality, how does Community of Christ reconcile current and past racism? Um, So uh, Barb just answered that one. Yeah, we don't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the next one's from a Lynn uh, Gillette. uh, I'm not sure who this is directed to, but while on a mission in uh, Berlin, 1963 to 1965, um, became friends. Um, and then we have Lindsay Hansen Park. How has the Community of Christ position changed, if at all, about polygamy, specifically the fact that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy?
2: Ooh, Locke, didn't you teach a class on this yesterday?
3: Yeah, that was my session yesterday. That, um,
2: Your 45-minute session down to just a few-minute answer?
3: So, yeah, I'll do my best. So we have evolved significantly through the years. Um, our take on polygamy was always, we, we think it's wrong, but our take on Joseph's role in its introduction has evolved through the years. We started uh, really maybe 1850 to 1870 approximately saying, Joseph did it, but he repented. We should forgive him. And then, as the people who were in Nauvoo began to die off, um, we're left with Joseph's public statements, which are all in opposition, and the scriptures of the church, which are in opposition. And we became convinced that Joseph had nothing to do with it. Uh, and then, by maybe 1960, we began to reconsider and, and began to think that perhaps it was um, an unintended consequence of eternal marriage. Um, if you can have plural spouses in heaven, surely it's okay on earth idea and so um still thought it was wrong but that it might have just been a natural outgrowth of eternal marriage and then beginning in the mid 80s i'd say 1980s um a number of us shifted to he did it and he was in all the way or actually where i land at is um yeah i think he introduced it but i think there's decent evidence to suggest that prior to his death he decided it was a mistake and was trying to get it stopped now i don't know if i think he thought it was a mistake because it was going to destroy the church or he thought it was a mistake because it was wrong. Um, I don't know. Um, but there's decent evidence to support that. and the more I look, the more sources I'm finding to support that. The reality is we really don't fully understand plural marriage in this introduction, and I don't think we ever will. Um, but it's fun to talk about.
4: All righty, And uh, from a uh, Michael Nielsen. I'm curious about your views regarding recent history. How do you see cultural forces impacting Community of Christ's development, the directions it moves or issues it, it addresses? Are there instances where the church was ahead of cultural change or does the church more typically respond to change?
2: Mike, you wanna answer that? Sure,
3: I, I think it's, it's mixed. Um, I think that often revelation is in response to questions, and so factors that are happening in the culture generate those questions. Um, but um, often we've been uh, kind of in step with cultural change, but not always. Um, you know, began ordaining women in 1984. Um, obviously, some Christian denominations made that decision prior to that. Plenty have still not made that decision. Um, we, in the U.S., began um, made the decision to ordain um, uh, gay and lesbian members in 2013, again, and allowed Community Christ Priesthood in the U.S. to perform same-sex marriages starting in 2013. So that's a little ahead of the Supreme Court decision. but But often the issues that we are working with and trying to make sense of are the issues that are important in the culture at the time. Um, so, and so I, I guess I'm not surprised by that. I wish that I could say we were always leading, um, but that is not the case. But but we're also not always following.
2: I agree. I think we're a little bit of both. Uh, what I find interesting in in the times that we're living in now, with this global pandemic. Uh, for for many people that serve on our board, especially one, they often look at um, being a historian in many ways is also being a futurist. By looking to the past, you have a pretty good prediction of what could take place into the future. And what we have found in the past is oftentimes when um, the community of Christ is experiencing a crisis or um, a difficult period in their history, that's when some of our best traditions give birth. So as we're experiencing this pandemic, where many of our places of worship are temporarily closed and people are isolating and in social distancing, there's um, the use of technology and uh, this incredible and exciting way of forming community while everyone remains at home is taking place and it's discovering new ways to connect and new ways to create those communities of joy, hope, love, and peace that are taking place right now. So it's that that thread through our history, that even during bad times, we find um, this sense of community and these new traditions that give birth that continue long into the future. So I'm curious as to what the uh, historians 30 years from now are going to be writing about in this time and place that we're experiencing uh, right now.
1: Special thanks to our guests, Barb Walden, Locke Mackay, and Megan Reed, This online event was immediately followed by our Sunstone Sunday worship and did not allow time to respond to all the questions participants logged into the Q&A. So we did a special podcast interview with Barb and Locke to address those questions. Look for that podcast right here on Project Zion or check out the show notes for a link. As always, thank you for listening to Project Zion Podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.